Now, I understand that, uh, A, one does not have to be a theologian to be saved. Jesus says, if you become like a little child in faith, uh, that's, that's what it looks like. You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. However, a lot of truth has to line up. A lot of theology has to line up for anybody to be saved by simple faith. So I'm not denigrating this gene- genealogy, but in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy, and the reason for that is it's a fast-forward mechanism to take you from the promises in the Old Testament to Abraham and David to Jesus and to show you the connection there. But I'm going to say that even though all these verses are inspired in the Scripture, and they're very important, I do believe that our passage in First Peter today is more strategic than, say, a, a statement in this genealogy. Let's just pick Matthew 1.13. Uh, Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. Let's close in prayer. I mean... That really is important, and I, I hate it when people just denigrate genealogies completely because you don't understand what's going on there. But let me suggest that that's, that's scriptural, it's inspired, it's essential, but I really believe, at First Peter 2 again, this is more strategic, especially as you study the book of First Peter. Beloved, if you're a believer, put your name in there. Carol Wanzer, Olga Pollock, Debbie McCoy, Brad McCoy. I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, we're in the world, but we're not of this world, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which aren't necessarily sensual, they could be self-righteous, but strong desires to be sinful and selfish, which wage war against our soul, our spiritual uh, viability, our testimony, our joy, etc. For every negative in the Bible, there's almost always... A corresponding positive, usually in the same context. So verse 11 tells you what not to do. Verse 12 tells you what to do. Keep your behavior excellent, even out in the real world. Rather than going, rather than going to work and wasting time at your desk doing Bible studies when the man's paying you to produce oil out of the ground, you ought to go and work hard for 8 or 10 or 12 hours to get oil out of the ground and then do your Bible study preparation somewhere else. Uh, some Christians do that kind of thing and wonder why we don't have a good testimony. We're wasting company time. Then some of them steal staplers. So, you know. And don't look in my closet. But, uh, keep your behavior excellent, even in the real world. We're not supposed to isolate. We're supposed to integrate. We're supposed to be salt and light in the world. You can't do that hiding out in the closet. Among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, so that, at least in some cases, over the long haul, in the thing in which they slander you as a Christian, that's what they slander you, backward, repressive, actually believe all this Bible stuff, as evildoers, as backward, uh, dangerous, etc. They may, because of your good deeds, as they show you, see you show up for work, you don't cuss, you don't have girlfriends, uh, you don't steal stuff, you actually produce for the for the job. As they observe them, as they see your good deeds on the line there at Goodyear, Dennis, or wherever you're working, as uh, they observe them, they may glorify God in the day of their visitation face-to-face with him. They may actually see the faith of Jesus because of your faith lived out in Jesus. So uh, that's the premise today. We're going to look at a very significant verse, uh, two verses, I guess, verse 11 and 12. And all these verses, all these statements are inspired. But this is such an important uh duo of verses. I want to do two things this morning. I want to do what we usually do, walk through the meaning of the verse so Sue can read it in her Bible and walk out the door and know what it means in her Bible and that won't change for her. 
But I also want to talk about the significance, not just the application, but the significance of these two verses in the way Peter structures this letter we call First Peter. So that's what we're going to do this morning, Lord willing. But first, uh, let's pray for uh, our teachability to God's Word. And then, as is our custom, let's pray for our firefighters and our peace officers and our active military. It's a very dangerous, evil, wicked world out there, fraught with danger. So we need to pray for those folks and their families. So, uh, Stan Heath, uh, pray for us in that direction, would you? Thank you, Stan. Let me remind you that uh, tonight we're going to kind of the follow-up on the, the three Sunday night men's Bible study we did in February and March. Uh, we're going to do a monthly men's fellowship just to have some informal interaction outside of these walls and get to know each other better. We're going to have uh, Coach Tony Dungy by the Miracle of DVD talk about the power of positive influence. Uh, Stan's going to share a brief testimony. And then at the end, and you have to stay at the end to qualify, uh, there'll be a chance to win a, a $20 uh, Johnny's gift card. Uh, and the runner-up will get a brand new, thanks to Ron Miller and Red Dirt Apparel, brand new, a really nice-looking TBF ball cap. So that's that's worth coming right there, Ben, because you play wear that when you play golf. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the, if you look at the uh, back of your bulletin today, you know, just to kind of catch people doing the right thing, we have heroes of the week, and this is unofficial. I'm sure some people who deserve to be back here a lot more than they are uh, for some reason. Don't make it, and other people, sometimes you wonder why they're Heroes of the Week. But uh, this week, uh, we've got Sheroes of the Week. I just was kind of thinking about it, and I thought about people like Ray Ward and uh, Jenny and uh, Carol, and then uh, there's Amanda Birch, and that's a, a picture. They, you know, one of the nicest things that's happened uh, to me, and I think for our church in 2017, was the fact that... Uh, the Birches, who had been here and then moved to Massachusetts, and he was working with MIT, which I think is fully accredited, um, uh, you know, for a couple of years. Well, he got a new position, and they allowed him to work uh, at home. You can work, they said, you can live wherever you want to, uh, and which is one of the amazing things. I mean, you, you appreciate that, don't you, uh, Krista? You can work at home. And you still, you know, you still are responsible, of course, and sometimes you have to make out-of-town business trips and things, but for the most part, they get, he gets work out of the, out of his home, so they brought their home back from Massachusetts to uh, Oklahoma, and so I've got uh, three cartoons to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking before we look at very significant content today. Three cartoons that talk about the joys or the sorrows of working out of the home. Um Here's the dog is talking to the guy with his laptop there. He's working out of, out of his home. Uh, the dog says, I work at home too, but you don't see me sitting around in my pajamas all day. The dog never puts on pajamas. You know, I didn't say these were like laugh out loud funny or anything. I just, they just kind of warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. Uh, here's a guy talking to another guy about his oversized television set. And he says, I can claim a 70 inch plasma TV as a business expense because my accountant said it's important to look at the big picture. And that's a big picture. You know what I mean? When it's 70 inches, that's pretty good. And hold your applause. Here's the last one. This is my favorite one. Uh, I think uh, Hubby took his wife out 
to eat. And of course, he's working at the restaurant with his laptop. And he says, hey, I got some good news. My boss says I can start working from home two days a week, Saturday and Sunday. And I don't mean to complain, but I have to work every weekend in all major religious holidays. So I, I can feel his pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's think about the meaning of this uh, passage, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And then we'll think about the significance of, of this passage. Now you'll notice, I know Steve's noticed this, uh, because uh, every just about every single week as we worked our way through First Peter, we've kind of started with what I've been saying is the purpose statement of the book, which is kind of in the middle of the book. And basically this tells you why he's writing this book. And he says, and you can put your name in the blank if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as spiritual aliens and short-timers. In the military you call that TDY, temporary duty. As spiritual aliens, short-timers on earth, even if you've lived to be 150 years, that's a very small little blip compared to eternity. Christians, that means... Wanda Skinner and Gene Shalit, Joe Franks and Michelle Franks should not be controlled by our epithumia, by our lust pattern, by our feelings, our emotions, our tendencies to be selfish and sinful. Uh, we should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings. Let those be appreciators, not initiators. But we should consistently live our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ, live out our faith centered on Jesus Christ, so much of what we're saying today, thank you, James, helps reinforce that for us. So that, best case scenario, this won't happen every time. Unbelievers who slander us because we are believers will see the reality of Christ in our lives. Yeah, not just when you're getting a promotion, but even when you've got a tragedy in your family or life. And ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. So we've read that, that's my paraphrase of that. And then we've emphasized as we've worked through this book, it's got two parts. It's like a bun on the top and a bun in the middle and uh, on the bottom and the meat in the middle and the purpose statement's in the middle. We've seen living your faith under fire 101. We finished that. We're going to look at the purpose statement today and then begin living your faith under fire 102. But uh, we've emphasized that those two verses are kind of the pivot. And let me emphasize that especially today. I'll give you this diagram. Think of the two major parts of the book as far as size, faith under fire 101, 102 as the that's blue, right? Those blue rectangles uh, on either side at the bottom of that diagram. But above that, almost like an umbrella, is this purpose statement. And let's read that uh, from a translation instead of my paraphrase. And I'm reading a New American Standard Bible here. A beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers on earth, in the world, but not of the world. And the world's real now. Let's not deny the reality of the importance of it, but it's only temporary and it's not ultimate to abstain from fleshly lust, from strong emotional desires to get what you want, when you want it, whether it's sensual or anything else. And it's not necessarily just sensual. It can be self-righteousness, which wage war against your soul. We, he already told us back in chapter 2, put aside things like this that he's warning about, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and like pure uh, newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow spiritually, Grow in respect to your salvation. If you feed on the word and live it, you're going to grow spiritually. If you're projecting yourself like uh, uh, every one of your whims and desires has got to be top priority for everybody else, uh, you're not going to make ground spiritually. You're going to lose ground spiritually. Those kind of things wage war against your soul. Uh, the flip side is, here's the corresponding positive. In other words, Sherry, 
Keep your behavior excellent, not just at church and at home, although those are important too, but out in the real world, out with unbelievers, whether it be in a restaurant or at work or on a sports team or teaching a course at a college level or high school level or being in a class at a high school or college level. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, your faith, your repressive, I mean, they, they spank their children. They don't believe in abortion. You know, they actually believe one man, one woman, one lifetime is the objective, is the, is the ideal. Oh my goodness, they're pretty repressive. They believe men should go in men's bathrooms and women should go in men's, women's bathrooms. You're not sure? You've either got XY or XX or XY chromosomes. That's all you got. I don't care what kind of surgery or hormones they inject into you. You can kind of figure that out. But, uh, I mean, we're dangerous because we're not, we're not on board with the conventional wisdom on all that stuff. So the very stuff they slander us about, the essence of our faith and our moral positions and our, the things that we hold dear, they may because of your good deeds, uh, the, your consistency at work, your consistency as a person, as a neighbor, uh, as they observe them glorify God in the day of your visitation. So let's think about the meaning of this. First, we've got an addressee or set of addressees, a command and then a purpose clause. The addressees, just one word, beloved. And who are the beloved here? The original readers, right? And we know they're believers, Summer. How do we know that? Because Pastor Brad says so. That's not a good enough reason. Let's go back and look what the text says. Go back to chapter 1. Peter, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ writing this letter under inspiration, so it is scripture, to those specifically who reside as aliens, there's the word alien again, par epidemois, scattered throughout northern and uh, eastern Turkey, we would say today. And they're there because of their faith, and they've been persecuted and forced to leave their homes and their pensions and their immediate extended family to get away from persecution. Uh who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey, to believe, to obey the call to believe in Christ. That's the context there. Jesus Christ, be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace in your Christian life, despite your suffering, which is totally unfair, be yours in fullest measure. That even though we got issues to, to deal with, Steve, and even though we got to deal with the reality of this persecution, these problems, the first thing he says is, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because cancer can't take this away from you and cancellations can't take it from you and criticism can't take it away from you. And with something else, we'll start with a C that's bad. I just came up with three of them. Uh, blessed be, praise be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ because even on Sherry's worst day or Brad's worst day or Homer's worst, worst day, uh, according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. So we've got life beyond our funeral to a living hope. He means a hope that goes beyond your physical death because it's based in and through summer, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the literal bodily supernatural resurrection of our Savior. To obtain an inheritance in heaven, which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved with your name on it in heaven. So Ben Harrington's got one. And Kay Massey's got an inheritance in heaven. And I picture it as a big box with my name on it. And I'm not sure it's exactly like that. That's the way I like to picture it. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for an aspect of your salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's not to believers. This is a believer talking to believers. If you're a believer, uh, Connie Norton, put your name in the blank. Look at verse 6. Now let's go back to the problems. He's not denying the problems. He's putting their problems in a bigger frame of reality. In this, in all this wonderful stuff that's true for you as a Christian, 
you greatly rejoice even though now, while it's necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, including losing your home and your pension uh, and your culture. So that, one reason God's allowing this is so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold might actually impact somebody else and get them to heaven. That's what he's saying. Uh, even though tested by fire may be found a result in praise, glory, and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him. These folks, Natalie, that he's writing to, were not eyewitnesses of Jesus. They just got the apostolic testimony. The, the apostles saw Jesus, and many of the New Testament recipients saw Jesus, but Stan, these people hadn't seen Jesus. They lived in Syria, and now they're in Turkey, and they've heard about Jesus through the apostolic word, just like we've heard about Jesus through the apostolic word. But look what he says about their faith in that word, and that truth, and that Savior. Though you have not seen him with your physical eyes, you love him. Though you don't see him now, he's not appearing to you, patting on the head or, or removing all your problems, but you continue to believe in him, you greatly Rejoice with joy, inexpressible, uh, full of glory, obtaining, ultimately, knowing, looking forward to getting the salvation of your soul, all the stuff you talked about, the inheritance, etc. Keep going. Drop down to verse 14. As obedient children, these, these readers are children. They're children of God through faith in Christ. Just like we sometimes are obedient children, sometimes we're disobedient, but they're children. He's writing the children of God. Don't be conformed to your former lust, those strong desires, that emotional pattern that tends to push you in the wrong direction. You always regret it later, don't you? And you have to apologize to your spouse or your friends or your boss or your co-workers that were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. Drop down to verse 18. Knowing you were not redeemed. You weren't saved by anything you did for God. It's what God did for you in Christ with perishable things like stacking up, Offerings, including silver and gold offerings, you were saved by the blood of Christ, the bloody substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was always at the center of the plan of salvation. But he's appeared in these last times in the reader's generation, although they had not seen him personally for the sake of you and others, who through him are believers in God. It's a two-way thing. You trust in Jesus, you've got the Father. You don't trust in Jesus, you don't have the Father. Uh, drop down to verse 22. Not very far to drop down, huh? Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, now do it. Love one another. Sometimes you got to hold your nose and lean way over backward. Baptism technique to get along with other Christians, but that's okay. Because you've been born again, not with a physical seed, but a spiritual seed, so you're enabled to do the right thing now. Drop down to verse 1 of chapter 2. Who's he writing to? He's writing these people who are believers that need to do the right thing despite the fact they're in crisis. To keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even though there's no earthly reason to keep on doing that. Therefore, putting aside all malice toward other people, especially other believers, is easy when you're under pressure to be kind of picky and hard and prickly and hard to get along with. And all deceit and hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. This is how you're going to grow, Jack. You know, if you want to uh, be fit, it's a third exercise and two-thirds nutrition. You cannot burn enough calories to overcome eating candy bars all day. And lately I've been on the candy bar hot dog diet, and it's not working. Okay? So i got to warn you about that. But a lot of Christians want to have Bible McNuggets on Sunday 
and kind of do whatever they their lust pattern tells them. It's not necessarily sensual. I know lust tends to make you think of that direction. It can be. Uh, and they wonder why they're not going and get, things aren't going well, so let's just change churches. It must be the church's problem. Not necessarily, you know. Along for the pure milk of the word as you take it in and live it out in your life, not criticize your wife better or your uh, boss or your neighbor better. You live it out so you critique yourself. Uh, you can grow and respect your salvation since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And I could go on, but the point is the beloved here, and go back to verse 11, are the believers receiving this letter originally, but it applies across the centuries to Wolfgang Dig or to Janice Skinner or to Julie Demerson as much as to Publius and uh, Euodia and Syntyche, whoever whatever their names were the original readers. So beloved. A fellow believers, here comes the command. And by the way, they're believers because they've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and they realize he's risen from the dead. That's the gospel. Okay. But the command here, notice it's two-pronged, I'm, I'm saying. Uh, it's got a negative and a positive. He says, beloved, I urge you. This is a command, but it's not an absolute hit you over the head. I want you to do this. Uh, it, it is in, in the imperative, in the original. I urge you as aliens and strangers. Have we heard that before? That's where he started, Steve, back in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Peter writing to those who reside as aliens, both culturally, because they're living in a different country, different language, different culture, but they're also spiritual aliens, just as we are, and short-timers. Back to verse 11, chapter 2. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to negative command, Abstain from fleshly lust. The word there, lust, is epithumia. It just means a strong desire to do something. And it can be a strong desire to do a good thing. Many people have a lust for life. They used to say, was a, you don't hear that much anymore, do you? A lust for life. Wasn't there, was there a Burt Lancaster movie? Am I dating myself? Uh, most, most of the people in this room don't even know about Burt Lancaster Jr. Much less about Burt Lancaster, but... It's funny because I was listening to this interview with George Harrison, the Beatles uh, uh, lead guitarist back in the 60s. And he said, one cool thing about being famous is you meet all these famous people. And he says, I don't mean people like Burt Lancaster. So so George Harrison was dissing on Burt Lancaster. But wasn't there a Burt Lancaster movie? Somebody quick do a Google thing. A Lust for Life. Or, or was that Anthony uh, Quinn who played one of the painters? What? Yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about? But I mean... A lust for life. You don't really hear that anymore, right? But that used to just mean somebody who really wants to achieve. Somebody like Tim Tebow has a lust for life, you know what I mean? He's going to try to find a sport he can... I mean, he's an amazing athlete. He just has to find the right sport, you know? I just hope he doesn't take up golf. He's liable to take up, take over, you know? But uh, but the word lust, in this translated lust in English, just means a strong desire. And you need the context to tell you whether it's a good desire or bad desire. And clearly... He's going out of his way to mean, I'm not talking about a strong desire to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We're talking about a strong desire to push what you want, when you want it, the way you want it, on everybody that you can have influence on. That's basically what he's saying there. So, uh, abstain from fleshly. That word sarks. When we think of fleshly, it's got to be physical, it's got to be sexual, but not necessarily. Uh, the word sarks just means... Uh, it can be translated, your sin nature, just a tendency to be sinful, selfish, and self-centered. Uh, somebody once said uh, the most important lesson of theology is there's only one God and you ain't him. 
But we desperately kind of want to fill that God-shaped vacuum, even as Christians, with our own agendas. You know, we baptize our own agendas and convince ourselves. And this can happen in the ministry really easily because, I mean, you make certain sacrifices, you feel like you've got a calling, you get some training, you get ordained. It's easy for people to have this ideal conception and then they think everything they want, uh, including what time, what color the carpet's going to be, is straight from the throne. And it's, it's more complicated than that. But abstain from fleshly, selfish loss that wage war against yourself. We're not talking about stuff that will build you and other people up spiritually. We're talking about stuff that will hurt you spiritually. And then again, this is so important because, you know, a lot of us preachers just say, don't do this, don't do that, don't uh, smoke, don't chew, don't kiss girls that do. You know, I've heard all kinds of variations on that growing up. And I think, you know, as a rule of thumb, that's probably a good, good rule of thumb. I'm all for it. But uh, Jesus didn't just sit around not sinning. In the New Testament, really, the whole of Scripture, I think uh, we miss in the Ten Commandments, even though they're stated negatively, no other gods before me is a negative statement. But what does it mean positively? Focus and worship and organize your life around the one true God, period, over and out. And then you won't have any gods other than him, right? So for every, and it's amazing, once you start thinking about this principle, it's almost everywhere. In almost every case, Steve, every time you see a negative command in Scripture, there's almost always a corresponding positive, usually in the immediate context. Okay, And Julie and David know that. They get that. So a really nice place to see that is Ephesians 4, where Paul just piles his negative statements followed by positive statements. Uh, he says, like, uh, uh, don't lie, speak the truth in love. Guess what, Carolyn? If you're speaking the truth in love, you're not lying. Okay? I mean, I guess you could stop lying just by putting tape over your mouth. But at some point, you're going to have to use nonverbals, and you can lie that way too, right? Uh, it says, uh, don't steal, work, and share. Okay? It's not enough just not to steal. That doesn't make you righteous. That's not a very good testimony, not stealing stuff. I mean, when you're working and sharing, going above and beyond, that kind of thing. So he lists these things. And here's an, another example. Abstain from fleshly, uh, emotionally charged, self-centered lifestyle choices in and out of work, your family, and your church. Instead, keep your behavior excellent, including not just at church and at home, but in the real world. And by assuming and really in the command, uh, just uh, associating the fact that to do this right, you're going to have to do it among people that don't like you necessarily because of your faith or don't believe in what you believe in. He's saying rather than isolating from the world, we got to integrate with it. We got to interact with it. I mean, uh, the Bible never calls unbelievers to go to church. It calls the church to go into the world. Now, it's it's great. I don't, there's no Christian church in, in Duncan or anywhere probably that would not want an unbeliever to come and listen and be exposed to the gospel. Of course, uh, the doors are wide open. And by the way, you can be locked out during the week, but you're never locked in. So, I mean, sometimes people panic. They get in here and James writes, well, we got a guy, I got a doctor's appointment or whatever. How can I get out? You can always get out. But getting in during the week can be a problem if you don't have a key. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird. I mean, Jesus didn't say, unbelievers all over the world, come to church and we'll tell you what the deal is. He tells the church, go into all the world and preach the gospel in the world. You know, how are you going to do that if you're isolated? Uh, and, uh, you know, the one thing I've been a, you know, professional Christian now for 30-something years, 29 here and six and a half in Shreveport. 
I remember as a dental student or just a college student or just selling scientific instruments or being working in a law firm, uh, not a ordained minister, full-time professional clergy person. In many ways, I had a lot more opportunity to share my faith than I do as a clergyman because this freaks a lot of a lot of American men are freaked out by Christians, and you see this every time you play in a charity scramble thing, and they find out who you are. I mean, it freaks them out. I mean, they, they know you're going to put the hard sell on them at some point or judge them because of some of the things they say when they miss short putts. And uh, I've got several jokes on that that actually happened, but I won't, won't go there today. But the thing to see here is the command here is two-pronged. It's not enough just not to be a jerk and selfish. What we want to do is not to impress other people. We'll talk about the motivation here in a minute, but... You know, you don't have to be a minister or pastor or youth minister or song leader or missionary to have a full-time ministry. David Demerson has just as much of a ministry as I do. His is just in and around Halliburton, right? Uh, Krista's got a ministry. Now, she's she working at home, but also just the way you work and the way you interact with people uh, affects the way people see Christianity because you're a Christian, they understand that. And over a period of time, they figure that out whether they know it or not. It doesn't take much anymore to stand out among the crowd. And this can happen in middle school or high school or in the real world. Just uh, if you're a guy, don't be looking, trying to look up under the secretary's dresses and stuff. Okay, if you're married, just kind of stay centered on your spouse when she's not around, and don't be ogling the girls. Is that the word you use? Uh, lust for life? No, forget, get all mixed up. Oogling, ogling, whatever they call it. I'm trying not to do it, but uh, yeah, don't do that. Uh, don't cuss. You know, uh, I was talking to Michael. Birch recently, you know, he, that came up, and he said, you know, uh, I've had, because he, he had to go to a business meeting uh, recently, I forgot where they went, but anybody remember a couple weeks ago he went to a business meeting? Yeah, went to Denver, yeah, and he said it's weird because, uh, you know, in Denver, smoking marijuana is legal, and he had known, and he, he had, he's an, he's an addict, you know, he's shared his testimony, and he's been clean and sober for 20 years, but he said he knew that after the big dinner, that most of the most of those folks were going to go and smoke some marijuana in their room, and it's legal. You can go to a store and buy it or something. And he said, "I can't do that. I'm not going to do that." And I thought I didn't want to look like a self righteous jerk, but he said the Lord just totally worked it out, so it wasn't a problem. But he did mention to me in passing uh, that uh, his his boss, and again, he doesn't work across the hall from him. Most of the time, they're just interacting on internet or phone during the day. He said, "I notice you don't really use profanity, <laughs> you know." And his, you know, and he said, "You know, it's weird. You know, it's like you're, uh, like you've got, you know, green kryptonite, you know, uh, coming out of you because you don't do that." So it doesn't take much anymore in this culture to stand out without being a self-righteous jerk about it. But keep your behavior even at work, you know, uh, even uh, on your sports teams, even in the classroom, uh, so that in the very thing where they tend to want to slander you because they've heard you're Christian. The media tells you how terrible Christians are, especially the ones that take this seriously. Because of your good deeds, because of the kind of person you are and the contributor you are to the work, the, the team or whatever it is, the neighborhood, as they observe them, they may glorify God in the day of visitation when they have to have a reckoning with God. They, they may actually be impacted by your faith more than coming to listen to somebody like me talk about the Bible. Uh, so that because of your Good deeds, and we're going to call those GGDs, good, 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 good deeds. And I'm going to show you what that means in a minute. Now, let me ask you, is this a Bible contradiction? Uh, 
We just read in First Peter, which is part of the Bible, that uh, Ben Harrington, as a believer, is supposed to keep his behavior excellent, even at bank first, even on a tough day at bank first, so that over time, people who would question Christianity and his faith might be able to see the reality of it and actually be impacted by it. Okay, that's a command. But how does this square with stuff Jesus said? Uh, he does say in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine uh, before people. But then he says in Matthew 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before people. Now, those two seem to contradict each other, and 6.1 seems to contradict what we just read in First Peter, doesn't it? Uh, well, you know, you got to keep reading. Uh, most Bible questions are answered in the verse before, the verse after, or really the rest of the sentence, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus is saying just generally to believers, to disciples, let your light shine before people in such a way they may see your good works and glorify you and think you're such a self-righteous church person that they're really impressed. Now, that they may see your good works and glorify whom? Glorify God, because you're not bragging, you're not showing off, you're not doing it in front of people. Did you notice I didn't cuss today? You notice I didn't smoke today? You didn't notice I didn't look at the secretary today? You notice that? I'm special. You know, you don't do that. You just do the right thing over and, and focus on the job. And some people will actually notice. It's crazy. But this is, and I know Olga loves this, but in Matthew 6, 1, in the same context, that's the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, he's already said, let your light shine. But he says, watch your reason. Watch your motive. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be noticed by them. Okay? you got to do the right thing. Amen. Okay, you're right. That's Somebody's getting it. She's all she's all for me. It's good to have somebody pulling for me here. Okay, beware practicing your righteousness for people to be noticed by them. Okay, the Pharisees were all about doing good deeds on a stage so everybody could tell them how wonderful they were. Sue Smith Raska is more about reality, loving the Lord Jesus uh, even when there's nobody around, and if somebody happens to notice, that's nice, you know. So that's really important, and there's no contradiction there. It's all about doing the right thing for the right reason. And Peter assumes you know that, okay? So that's what those verses mean, which among other things, as far as implication, application means that, uh, you know, watch this. Evangelism isn't a point act where you hand somebody a tract or you share John 3.16 with them or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 with them and you sit down and pray them through it and they trust Jesus Christ as Savior. That's that's kind of jumping over the goal line after a 90-yard, you know, offensive drive. But it takes all kinds of stuff that God's doing and he uses other people to do to get people to that point. So evangelism is a process, and that doesn't just happen at Baptist revivals. And I got saved at a Baptist revival in Opelika, Florida, so I know those can work. But evangelism is you getting up and going to work on Monday and living your Christian life well and consistently and doing your job as opposed to doing stuff that's not related to the job, right? So that's very important. So I think when he says, hey, do the right thing for the right reasons and don't be driven by your your less sinful, selfish patterns, but do the right thing. And maybe, just maybe, living your faith can affect other people to see the light and believe. What he's really saying is that we ought to see all of our lives as not just submitted to the Lordship of Christ, but dedicated to propagating his gospel. I know Carla said this many times, but somebody much smarter than me, I think 
maybe it was uh, C.S. Lewis said something like, uh, live and share the gospel everywhere. And when necessary, use words. Just saying, live consistently with this truth, and people will notice the difference. Okay, So that's the meaning. That's the meaning. Let's talk, now let's talk about the significance of this purpose statement for this whole book. And to kind of uh, lead up to talking about that specifically, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, uh, have you ever heard anyone object to Christianity by saying, the Bible can mean anything anybody wants it to mean. You quote a Bible verse to them and they say, the Bible can mean anything anybody wants it to mean. How do you respond to that? Well, let me su- I'm going to suggest an answer here. But I would say, uh, you know, the Bible is, you know, I didn't want to do that yet. <laughs> okay, that's question number one. Question number two. Uh, how would you respond to that? I guess I ask you that. And, and, you know, you can read ahead and get my version of it, but just think about that. And here's the, transforming truth and answer to those questions. Um, you know what? You can use the text of the Bible to tell you what the Bible means. I mean, the Bible doesn't always mean what it says, but it always means what it means by what it says, the way it says it. And invariably, the vast majority of books in the Bible, Anthony, have a purpose statement at the beginning, middle, and the end that are telling you why the person's writing. And you use that as kind of your super context for everything else. Now, let's talk about significance. Let me make three statements, and I'll illustrate these. Uh, Number one, the Bible can have a variety of meanings, but which one is the actually contextually rooted, valid interpretation? And I would say, hey, the Bible is basically revelation, which means to reveal something means to make it visible, to make it known. When you reveal something, you're making something known, right? When you conceal it, you put it somewhere where they can't get it. The Bible's a revelation. It's designed to be understood. It's written to be understood, uh, especially by believers. Okay, So it's written to be understood. Uh, the plain things and the main things are plain things that you repeated a lot. You hear me repeat that a lot because I think it's very important. But here's what I want to emphasize today in the context of uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Watch this. Jack, I told you what it means. You know what it means now. But here's why it's so significant. This, these two verses are the key to understanding the whole book of First Peter, because Dale, he's giving it his purpose for writing here. Okay? It's a purpose statement. And in fact, many biblical books have purpose statements at the beginning, the end, or the middle. And let me show you some examples. Uh, the Gospel of Luke and its twin, the book of Acts, start with their purpose statements at the very beginning of the books. And I put them side by side for purpose of comparison. Gospel of Luke, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us in the Christian movement, just as those who from the beginning, the apostles, were eyewitnesses and servants to the word have handed them down to us, when Luke's writing this, Matthew and Mark have been written and are circulating. And he's saying, I know you've read those or you've heard about those, but I want to write one more. So just as Many people have undertaken a compiled account, including the eyewitnesses and servants of the word that handed it down to us. It seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in logical order. And he's writing to a specific individual, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a new believer, and he's a VIP, okay? Uh, it, whether you like Tom Cole or don't like Tom Cole, He's our congressperson, and according to the protocol, when you write a letter to him, 
we refer to him as the, as the Honorable Tom Cole. His closest political allies formally would refer to him as the Honorable Tom Cole. His worst political enemy would call him the, most, the Honorable Tom Cole. It's just, a, it's just a, a convention. It's a courtesy, right? Most excellent Theophilus is the way you'd address somebody who's a high government official in the Roman government. Okay, Theophilus is a new believer, and Luke's trying to ground him in discipleship truth by telling him about the ministry of Christ. Uh, and so this is discipleship. Luke is telling him and us what the life of Christ looks like so we can emulate it as believers. Now, volume two, Luke and Acts are two volumes, two volumes set by the same human author. Written a couple of years later, look what happens here, uh, Doug. Uh, This is the purpose statement of the book of Acts. The first account, which we would call the Gospel of Luke, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the ascension when he was taken up uh, uh, and had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. How do we know there's 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension? Where does it say that in the Bible? Right there, in the book of Acts, right? That's what he's saying. Um, speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, what's the difference between the addressee? Ben, look at that. In, in Luke, he calls him the Honorable Tom Cole, and now he's just calling him Tom. He must have got fired for his faith. That's possible. That's possible. He may have lost his position. It's also possible they're close enough friends now. Uh, it's like, you don't have to call me Dr. McCoy. You don't have to call me Dr. McCoy. Just call me Dr. Brad. That's fine. <laughs> no, you don't have to call me Dr. McCoy. Uh, but it's possible they're just so much uh, closer relationally. Theophilus has said, you don't have to call me most excellent Theophilus. We all know I am excellent. Just call me Theophilus, okay? So that would be a good example of two books that have a purpose statement at the beginning. So it's all about discipleship there. Uh, and you don't have to even notice that's a purpose statement to probably figure out Luke and actually about discipleship, but it's, it's helpful to know that. A book like Ecclesiastes, which is basically Solomon ruminating over his midlife crisis after he came out of it, uh, trying to find something other than God to make him happy, his purpose statements at the very end of the book, in, in several biblical books, including the Gospel of John and Ecclesiastes, have their purpose statement at the very end. When that happens, a lot of us like to say the key to understanding Ecclesiastes hangs at the back door. The key to understanding the Gospel of John, Scott, hangs at the back door because the purpose statement is at the end. Ecclesiastes, the most philosophical book in the Bible, says the conclusion when all has been heard, when you've tried everything to fill that God-shaped vacuum, even as a believer, you've kind of soft-pedaled your faith, is fear God, which means not abject fright, but reverential awe and centeredness, and keep his commandments, whether you know the man appreciates it or not. This applies to every person, for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. So that's the purpose statement of Ecclesiastes. Probably my favorite book in the Bible, if you're permitted to have a favorite gospel of John. Let's go to John chapter 20. Well, I could talk for a long time on this, but I won't. I know that's like DEFCON 4 at this stage. 40 minutes in. Oh my goodness. I want to do that to you. And I know there's another chapter after chapter 20, but that's an epilogue. And when you look at the structure of this book, uh, you've got a prologue and an epilogue, an introduction, conclusion. 
You've got seven specific miracles Jesus did that John's using to prove that his, what his claims were were true. The upper room discourse just before the arrest and then the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Messiah, his resurrection after his atoning sacrifice. So hanging above all that, we have the purpose statement that Joe read so nicely for us. It's called a worship today. And I'm looking at New American Standard Bible, but John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Here's the human author under inspiration, Carol, telling you what, what he's doing here. Therefore, many other Miracles Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, and he was one of them, and he saw them, which are not written in this book. So what's he telling you, James? I'm not trying to be comprehensive here. I could tell you a lot more about stuff Jesus did and said, but I'm being selective, okay? I've got a, a purpose here. My purpose is to give you more than enough information so that, verse 31, but these, what I have written, what I have selected to include in this book, have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you have life in his name. This is the evangelistic book of the Bible. It's the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, are discipleship manuals for believers, okay? John's telling you uh, how you received the gift of eternal life, and 90 times, nine zero times, the Gospel of John says you believe to receive eternal life. And believe doesn't mean just mental assent. Nor does it mean giving Jesus something and he gives you eternal life. You're not giving him anything. Saving faith is active, receptive trust. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God and those who believe in his name. This is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up in the last day. Is that incredible? That's right up there with Romans 8, Homer. It's that good. Jesus is saying, this is the will of God the Father, that everyone who sees with the eyes of faith and believes, Michelle, in me, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up. Is that any good? I mean, that's incredible. Ninety times, John's not making this stuff up, and he could have said 190, but he just has 90 times, and he says, I'm writing this so you can see and believe. And, you know, the Christian life is just living out that faith. It's, somebody said, Christianity is one big yes and a lot of uh-huhs. One big yes. Yes, Lord, I believe in you. I trust in you. And now I want to love and serve you as my Lord because you're my Savior. So these purpose statements can be at the beginning, can be at the end, or in a book like First Peter, and we'll start with Ephesians. Look at Ephesians. can be right in the middle of a book. Okay? So you got to kind of look for them, which is one reason. I know Steve will, Steve's my best salesman now. He's, you know, I'm not sure if you keep keeping with the program here, brother. If you went on the hot dog and the candy bar diet with me, uh, but uh, now you read through this book at a sitting. First Peter takes you takes twelve minutes, or takes Steve. He's a he's a what nineteen twenty one or something. Yeah, you're a slow reader. I'm looking to say, but uh, you know you read through a book like this for a couple of weeks, and you'll go, yeah, yeah, it kind of does build toward the middle and go toward the end. Yeah, you can see the repetition. But a book like Ephesians is classic because. Basically, for three chapters, he tells you what you need to believe. And then, four, five, six, he tells you how to behave. There are no commands in the first half of Ephesians. There's no commands. He's just telling believers what's true about themselves as Christians. And it's good. And it doesn't start when you die. It starts when you first believe. And then he tells them how to behave. So he's talking about doctrine for three chapters and then duty, belief, and behavior and the hinge is right in the middle. 
4, 1 through 3. It's the purpose statement. Ephesians. Therefore, based on what I've said about what's true for you as a believer, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he's under house arrest in Rome when he writes this, implore you, I urge you, to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, which I've talked about now for three chapters, about your calling, your standing, with all humility and gentleness and patience, etc., being diligent, and so on and so forth. So Ephesians is a classic case. But let's go back to and conclude our consideration of First Peter today by looking back at First Peter 2, 11-12. This is clearly the purpose statement of the book. And I'm not the only one who says this. But uh, you see Faith Under Fire 101, Faith Under Fire 102, and it builds to and away from this statement, Beloved, I urge you as aliens, not just in your culture, in your physical reality, but in your spiritual dynamic and strangers, to abstain from being selfish and, and feeling sorry for yourself or self-righteous or anything in between. Keep your behavior excellent, not just at church and around the people you like and around your family and around your pastor uh, or your youth minister when he's watching you but out in the real world, at school and at work and on your sports teams, so that in the thing in which they really want to not like you because of your faith, because you're Christian, you're backward, you're repressive, they may, because of your good deeds, the fruit of your salvation, see it and want to believe it too. That's what he's saying. So here's my paraphrase. It's spiritual alien short-timers. Don't be controlled by our emotions, feelings. Of course, you know what? Uh, I remember somebody once told me, uh, I'm a planner. And I just love to plan something and see it all work out. And I thought, I know this person. What she's saying is she's very selfish, and she has a plan for everybody's life, including the pastor, and she really is happy when everybody's doing what she wants them to do. And that sounds really good. You know, what are your goals? i got five goals. Your goals may be totally self-centered. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it, I think it's better to focus on church health and let's see, let's see what happens. And it's kind of my philosophy. But I'm not rich or famous, so don't go by me. But uh, we're going to be controlled by what we want, our emotions, our feelings. Even if we convince ourselves we can baptize them uh, and make them, sanctify them. We should consistently live our faith centered on the person we believe for eternal life so that we actually live a consistent enough Christian life that people will notice. That's what it's saying. Or at a practical level, Ben, take this home, this book as a whole, saying keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Okay. What's the point, Pastor? Get down to the bottom line. Well, let's go back to the claim and try to answer it. The Bible can mean anything anybody wants it to mean. Is that right? They're right. They're right. The Bible can mean anything anybody wants it to mean. So can the U.S. Constitution. So can the Reader's Digest. So can even a text from your spouse. And uh, I'm not trying to make points with Stan and Jenny, but if it works, I need all the points I can get, so please. Uh, so can a, a text or a message from your spouse if the message is read apart from the context and or without regard to how the person, your spouse in this case, uses language or their intent. Okay, So if Stan's out of town, on a business trip, and he texts Jenny, it's raining cats and dogs at the airport. Okay? What's he going to think? He's been drinking again. He thinks small mammals coming out of the sky. No. If he says it's raining cats and dogs at the airport, uh, she's not going to think that uh, he's telling her felines, that'd be cats, and canines, that'd be dogs, are dropping out of the sky. Uh 
I said or. I should say she would be recognizing he's using figure of speech. That's a figure of speech we use. Now, if you're in Mafrock, Jordan, with a translator, and you say, my wife just called, just sent me a text or email, and she said it's raining cats and dogs back in Oklahoma, and the guy who translates you doesn't know that. He says, our friend of America says his wife back in Oklahoma in the United States says it's raining small mammals are coming out of the sky. Uh, don't believe anything else he says either. That's what can happen to you if you use idioms, you know, in that kind of context. But, yeah, I mean, that could mean that, but it doesn't mean that. I mean, we understand what things mean based on context. And the technical term for this is the grammatical, historical, contextual approach to Bible study. Aren't you glad you came to church today to get that? Boy, that's great. And this is for short, let's just call that contextual. That's the way to study the Bible. But And that's what we try to do here. That's why I typically work through books of the Bible, so I can't be cherry-picking stuff and reading stuff into it. We've got to go through the whole book. So I'm not Steve's going to... Make sure I'm stay on the on the level and that kind of stuff, but let's just call that contextual Bible study, and that's the way you understand anything in life: your wife, your teacher, your coaches, your boss, your neighbors, your mother. My mother, my mom calls me every week, even if I try not to call her at all, and I, we have to talk, you know. And she wants me to know about her medical issues, and I write it all down and and pray about it. But uh, but. So many Christians see the Bible as just individually wrapped Bible McNuggets. You just rip them out of context and read something into them. And here's the thing. You can rip something completely out of context. And if the meaning you're getting there is taught somewhere else in Scripture, what you're saying is truth, but you're getting the right answer for the wrong reason. And that's going to break down at some point when you're just ripping stuff out of context. And that's why it's so important to read. Uh, you don't have to read the whole book of First Peter before you can read any of it. But before you make too many bombastic, dogmatic statements about things in First Peter, make sure what you're saying is consistent with what the rest of First Peter is doing and saying and, and what the rest of the words saying. So let me give an example, and then we'll close with this. But you got to read the whole context. Somebody, I think Donald Gray Barnhouse, the Presbyterian preacher, said most Bible questions are answered in the verse before the verse after. So watch this, Jason. Uh, this is... Psalm 96, verse 4. Great is the Lord, and greatly be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Now, what's some of you have heard me say this before, but man, what's the implication of that, Ken? That sounds like the author of Psalm 96 is saying there's a bunch of gods out there. A bunch of gods out there, lowercase g gods, let's say. But our God is better, so we should focus on him. Because there's lots of, does the Bible teach there's a bunch of gods? How many gods does the Bible teach there is? There's only one God. But, doesn't Psalm 96 verse 4 contradict that? What do you do? You go to the next verse. Let's go to the next verse, shall we? Can we do that? For. That's key in the Hebrew. Key. But it means because. Because all the gods of the people are idols. They're not real. But the Lord's real. He made everything. He made the universe. Okay? Our Lord Jesus himself uh praying for his apostles and us, because he says, I'm not just praying for these, but those who have believed through their word, says, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to read not just uh, individually wrapped Bible McNuggets, we've got to read the verse before and the verse after. And when there's a purpose statement for a book, it'd be really good to factor that in too. And, uh, you know, job security for me and James, you're going to need... Uh, a little help on some of the hard stuff. But the main things are plain things. And the Bible says we've all sinned. We can't fix it. 
Jesus can, and we can have eternal life through faith in him. And for those of us who believe in that, we're going to want to feed on God's word, interact with one another, pray for one another, build each other up. And that's the way you live the Christian life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to have uh, a commitment to your word and to understanding it the way it's written and with what it really means in its context, and not just understanding it with our heads, but to embrace those truths and those implications as directly relevant to our individual lives. It's so easy for us to read portions of Scripture and say, I wish my wife would do that. I wish my pastor would do that. I wish my boss would do that. I wish my neighbor would do that. My sister would do that. My brother and my teacher. When you're really wanting us to read these things and take ourselves on as a science project and and to apply them to our lives. So help us to read in context what you're saying, not explain it away, embrace it and live it to your glory. And I pray that we would, as uh, a congregation of believers, have uh, an impact for time and eternity by the consistency of the way we live, not just by showing up for church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but living it out at school, at work, in the real world. We pray you'd empower that to happen, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.